Hi there, welcome to Beyond the Benchmark. My name is Moz Afzal and I'm the Chief Investment Officer of VFG. This is an edited version of our internal podcast, more than just a typical market analysis podcast. In each episode, we go beyond the benchmark, delving into current topics affecting markets, economies and investor psychology. Each episode, I'll be discussing global trends with guests and experts from within EFG and further afield. If you'd like to get in touch, please email me on beyond at fgam.com. Repeat that, beyond at fgam.com. This week, we are going to delve into everything Japan. And we have, again, by popular request, Jeyu Nakajima from ISI. Jeyu, welcome. Thank you, Moz. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, absolutely. So um, since we last spoke, the uh, the Nikkei has roared ahead. The performance has been, in some respect, quite spectacular. And everybody is now eyeing up, you know, potentially the big one of 35,000. Now, you've recently written uh, a note uh, talking about the path or sketching out the path to 35,000. Um, maybe you can um, uh, elaborate on, on your thoughts and uh, what do you think are the key drivers to, to that target? Thank you. You know, it's not like Japan was in the penalty box for a couple of years from global investors, but I think things are finally changing for the better. Um, there are actually about, you know, six or seven positives for Japan, but I want to keep this really, really simple, uh, which is the world economy will expand at a robust pace in 2021. And that's the sweet spot for Japanese corporate profits and equities. Um, that's, that's really the, the, by far the most important driver of the performance in Japan. The last three times uh, we had synchronized global growth, uh, that would be 2003, 2013, and 2017. And I'm not counting the uh, the year of the initial rebound off of the recession. So I'm not counting 2009, I'm not counting 2001. Um, I'm counting only the, the period where global growth accelerated during an expansion. Uh, in those years, corporate profits were up uh, about 20% on average, and the Nikkei was up about 35% on average. So 35,000 on the Nikkei is just the off of the 35% uh, of 2020's uh, finish. So that's one way to get there. Now, this intuitively, all this makes sense, because if you look at the index constituents, uh, about 75% of the index, whether you look at the Nikkei or the topics, uh, are you know, what we call exporters or global brands. And I would even add that, that, that 75% share of the constituents of global brands actually understate revenue and earnings contributions uh, from overseas because some of what we consider to be domestic names uh, are actually expanding their footprint overseas. So a perfect example here is a, a real estate developer called Mitsui Fudo-san, uh, which is a large developer uh, of um, Hudson Yards here in New York and Hanover Square and Mayfair in London, which is close to EFG's headquarters. So, mm -hmm. you know, these are, you know, what we traditionally consider to be domestic names that are uh, going overseas. <clears throat> so, you know, the, the, the number one theme here is that synchronized global growth is great for Japanese companies. And then that's, that's sort of the macro um, view of the world. And if you just you know, give me two minutes and explain the micro side of this. 
you can look at this from the bottom up uh, approach, which is Japan is home to highest quality manufacturing companies uh, with large exposure in speaking industries, right? Autos, uh, semiconductors, and uh, robotics slash automation. So, you know, I'm going to give you three two-letter acronyms, EV, 5G, and FA, factory automation. And I couldn't quite, you know, uh, <laughs> juxtapose these two, two letters to yeah. make a you know, catchy name like Fang. Yeah. But, you know, if you can come up with it, please email me. <laughs> uh, but first on EV, uh, everybody knows uh, about this. And, you know, to be honest, Japan was really, really late in the initial stages of the EV boom. Uh, and I think up to about 2018, Japanese OEMs were focused on hybrid. Uh, and then about three years ago, there was this collective awareness uh, and acknowledgement that Japan is becoming really late. Uh, so I think Toyota was the first one to uh, admit it, and they said they're late, and they, they will aggressively invest and catch up with global competitors in the EV space. Uh, so in the news today, they they're at least catching up. Uh, in the news today, Toyota will introduce its first mass market EV in the U.S. Uh, I think they're introducing two models this year. And what I'm getting a little bit more excited is uh, Toyota is working with Panasonic on solid-state battery, uh, which I think it will enable you to travel 300 miles in a single charge that takes only 10 minutes. So you can recharge the battery in 10 minutes, and you can go you know, 300 miles, which if this becomes commercial, looks like a game-changer. Um, the second industry is 5G. And of course, we know Japan is not a fab giant, uh, but it does have some capacity, and it'll only increase from here. In the news, I think in the last couple of weeks, is that TSMC said they'll um, they're building an R&D center uh, in Japan, and probably more important is Japan is home to many semi equipment companies that are likely to benefit from the the ramp up of 5G. So, somebody told me this years ago, and I I find this to be a very insightful way to put it. Uh, Japan is very good at making things that go into other things. And this sort of <laughs> fits perfectly into that 5G thing. Then lastly, um, automation and robotics. I think we talked about this before. Uh, this is another secular trend I see will continue to grow over time, but it does need a little bit of cyclical help. And I think we're getting that in 2021. Um, I won't get into the standard pitch of automation, uh, labor cost savings, and better quality control. But one factor that I think is developing in Asia um, is this sort of long-term overhang effects of U.S.-China trade tensions. And this is pre-COVID, but I met with companies in Japan, uh, Taiwan, and Korea. And the strong consensus in this region is that tensions between the U.S. and China will persist. And one implication is that China will become decentralized in terms of global manufacturing capacity. So the obvious winners are Southeast Asia. Um, but, you know, there is some limit to how much you can expand in Southeast Asia, uh, given their infrastructure. And also, you know, it is quite fragmented. So it's, there is inefficiency by moving away from China to Southeast Asia. Uh, there will be some onshoring uh, into Japan, but the, the common effect here is that there will be a long-term boost to capital spending, especially in, in factory automation. So, 
you know, if you look at EV, 5G, and FA, those are all secular trends that are likely to help Japan. And you just needed a little bit of that cyclical tailwind, and that's happening in 2021. So let me let me stop there, mm. and then you can go into further detail. Yeah, so I was going to say that, um, you know, I guess alongside the kind of cyclical moves, obviously, you know, I've always looked at Japanese companies uh, as probably the highest operating leverage companies that are around in the world, virtually. Yes. Uh, very, very high yes. operating. So they're very leveraged into that earnings uh, cycle, uh, which um, which uh, you know is is kind of sort of kind of pushing things higher. Um, but within that operating leverage, then you've got, uh, I guess, the kind of mini bits that that fit in. Um, one of those is is the yen. So. Uh, and, you know, we haven't really talked about the Nikkei and the yen for a long time now. It was a problem, you know, 15, 16, you know, 17, and they kind of dissipated a bit as, as, um, as uh, you know, US and China trade tensions and those trade tensions kind of took over. But um, you know, what's your view on the yen in terms of uh, the short term and whether, you know, any weakening of the yen will, will provide that kind of cyclical boost uh, further? For some time, I don't have a strong, strong view on the yen. And I could see the argument on both sides right now. Uh, I think the consensus tends to be that the yen will get stronger as the dollar gets weaker. Um, if I remember the latest survey of traders in Japan, say the yen will strengthen towards 100. Uh, I think one of three was the consensus call. Um, what I do see happening though uh, offsetting that is um, I think the market is getting ready for um, higher inflation in the US uh, which means yields in the US will go higher uh, our, our forecast Evercore ISI's forecast of US 10 year yields is 2.0% by year end and that's the kind of environment where the yen um, typically weakens so if it actually goes to 2%, that should mean the yen should be about 110, 109 to 110, which is quite competitive. And, you know, there are a lot of um, funds, there's a lot of money at financial institutions in Japan that are seeking yield overseas because you're not getting any in, in Japan. So that, that flow is real, and I think that will keep the yen quite competitive. So if you... Combined, uh, you, as you rightly pointed out, uh, there is a lot of operating leverage in Japanese companies. And if you combine that with a competitive currency, uh, which I think will keep in 2021, um, even at this rate, I think today it's at 104, 105, that's, that's quite competitive for Japanese companies. Uh, you should have a tailwind uh, of favorable earnings translations from overseas from the yen also. So... You know, what I, what I consider this is, is I don't consider this to be the centerpiece of the idea today, uh, but it should be a sort of marginal plus for, for the Japan story. And then um, let's talk about kind of stimulus and I guess the other key factor, certainly in the short term, is the kind of reopening uh, and kind of reduction of lockdown. Mm -hmm. Maybe let's take the, the, the lockdowns first. Um, you know, how's the situation in, in Japan at the moment um, with respect to kind of lockdowns and you know, general behavior or consumption trend behavior? So this is one where Japan, until December, Japan looked to have escaped the worst case scenario. You know, the number of cases and fatalities were 
actually quite under control. And um, around December, the cases really started to spike, um, which led to you know what I call what I call soft lockdown, which is the state of emergency. So you're essentially asking people to not go outside. Uh, restaurants remain open until 8 p.m. so you can dine in. So it's not as harsh as you know lockdowns in Europe or or the U.S., but they're putting in some measure to slow down the infection rate. Uh, that seems to have worked. Uh, so we are on the decline in, in terms of number of cases. Uh, but, you know, another factor, another moving piece here is the Olympics. And obviously the, the, the number of cases or, you know, how stressed hospitals are is an input into that decision making. So, you know, what I think is happening is Mr. Suga and the government are laser focused on getting the infections under control. Uh, one to you know restart the economy and as as soon as possible. I think it'll reopen in March, but also to maximize the odds of the Olympics um, still happening this summer. Um, so I do expect some consumer rebound in March. And don't forget, I think we may have covered this last time uh, during the podcast. But every resident in Japan got a thousand dollars cash handout uh, in the summer from the fiscal stimulus. So if you're a family of four, you, you have $4,000 in the, in the bank account. So the saving rate in, in, as of 3Q of last year was about 11%. And normally I consider the saving rate in Japan to be about two to 3%. So there is a lot of dry powder uh, of consumers that they can sort of go out and spend once things reopen. Uh, so that's, that's an additional positive for the economy. Uh, but, you know, this seems to be sort of um, um, uh, in the pipeline. But if I can add one more thing, this is something I think about quite a bit. Is um, so Japan is hasn't started the vaccination program yet, and the argument uh, or or justification for that is, well, cases were under control in Japan, so there wasn't sort of this this urgency to start the vaccination ASAP because they seem to have uh, dealt with it naturally. Um, and, you know, one thing I think about is to the extent uh, Asia has generally dealt with this uh, better in terms of minimizing the infection rates, uh, I do wonder the margin of benefits of vaccines, or maybe you could argue it's smaller for Asian countries. That is, you're not going to have... You, uh, Asian countries didn't have the, the plunges in economic activity last year, but you may not get the rebound that we are seeing oh, in the U.S. or we are likely to see in Europe. So that's something I think about. Uh, Japan may fit into that sort of less uh, plunge and less rebound. Um, so that reopening trade might not be quite there for Japan. So but that would be very much a domestic reopening trade may may not be there but the international reopening trade is very much there right given given what you said that's that right. uh, you know 75 percent right. of the index is is very correlated to the international um economy. that's exactly right mm. yes and and one, one more actually is you know even though the reopening trade from domestic consumers may not be there the the one thing that really got clobbered is the international travel and, you know, the Chinese travel tourists and Korean tourists that used to be a lot in Japan, 
that basically went to zero. So there is some of that um, uh, in the pipeline if there is a vaccination uh, across Asia. Uh, but that might be a 2022 event. Interesting. So it'd be a little bit more prolonged um, uh, expansion rather than something that uh, is kind of a couple of quarters and then kind of dissipates. Um, yes. From that perspective. Yes. So, yeah, that's right. So I sort of think of this as a reopening of of manufacturing activity in 2021 and um, reopening of global tourists in 2022. That's sort of how I think about it as of today. Uh, in terms of stimulus plans, anything additional to what we've already seen? Well, they, they've done a lot <laughs> uh, so far. And I think fiscal is still, you know, they just passed one in December. So I don't, I don't see anything immediate additional fiscal st- uh, spending anytime soon. Uh, but I think the door is always open for additional fiscal spending. Um, the monetary side, I think most investors agree that there really isn't much to do there, uh, except for perhaps opportunistically ramping up ETF purchases as necessary. Uh, but I, I would say I think the investor community in general hasn't isn't putting a lot of um, hope in the in the stimulus basket. But again, if you go back to you know that seventy five percent constituents, I think the mover of the market will be what kind of fiscal stimulus we get in the U.S. Uh, and, you know, what kind of stimulus will there be in China if there is going to be uh, fiscal stimulus in China? I think those will be much bigger impact uh, than stimulus out of Japan. Well, so- certainly the FA part of your EV 5G FA would uh, would be a big beneficiary <laughs> of, uh, of, I yeah. guess, uh, infrastructure spending in the United States and elsewhere. Yes, yes, yes. And I think that's why, you know, as you rightly pointed out, I think that's what the market has responded in the last, you know, couple of weeks is this rising expectations of larger fiscal stimulus in the U.S. And uh, just a just a slight uh, detour in terms of kind of green spending and you know, Japanese companies uh, and corporations that are, you know, sensitive to green spending. You know, are there kind of any obvious sectors that you think Japan has a um, you know a real winning formula in? Uh, this again goes back to I think the EV point. Right. And I think was it, I think it was Tokyo and Osaka. It was it was a back to back announcement, but the city of Tokyo and city of Osaka said they're going to uh, have sell only electric vehicles and by by twenty thirty. I think that was the right. the latest move so you know in terms of how to capture this will be again through electric vehicles right interesting so um so i guess the big question for many at the moment is the olympics and uh whether (laughs) other olympics going to go ahead and and so and so forth um so uh what's your what's your view today um you touched upon the hospitalization rates has been quite quite critical number. What's your what's your thoughts? Yeah, so at, I, you know, at the peak, at the worst part of this pandemic, the um, you know there, there isn't sort of national hospitalization number out there, but hospitals in Tokyo were about ninety percent of capacity, which is um, quite severe, um, and I think that's now down to a little bit less than seventy percent as of today. Uh, that that number again is very very critical for this 
debate. Um, in the interest of full disclosure, I do have, you know, uh, with a group of about 20, we do have tickets to the opening ceremony in Tokyo, <laughs> uh, to the Tokyo Olympics. So this is something that's very close to me personally, yeah. <laughs> not just as an analyst. <laughs> I would love to go. Um, but the, the discussion that's been happening and what I hear from our travel agents um, seems to be that the Olympics will occur, will happen, but without spectators. That seems to be the direction we're headed to. Right. And, um, you know, that's too bad for, for us, but, you know, great for athletes. Um, and the, the, the general sentiment got really sour on the Olympics. There was a lot of pushback against having the Olympics by Tokyo residents. Uh, I don't know if you saw, but there was a poll out there in January saying 80% of people in Japan oppose having the Olympics this year. Um, and of course, you know, add to that, we sort of had this uh, disgraceful um, remark by the president of Tokyo Olympics Committee uh, who resigned today. Um, so that didn't help the cause. You know, that didn't uh, help get people get excited about the Olympics. Uh, but there is this sort of sentiment also out there that, well, if you can't do it for the spectators, we should at least have it for the athletes. And I think that sentiment has been growing outside of Tokyo. So, you know, people outside of Tokyo are a little bit more optimistic and hopeful that this will happen. That's uh, that's actually very interesting. You wrote a little note and I picked up one of the guidelines that uh, they have for spectators is that they, they can clap, but they can't cheer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. There was there was a, there was a guideline that's like thirty pages, and you can cheer by clapping, but you can't chant, uh, you can't high five, you can't take public transport, and uh, there was just a lot of things where you know you basically go there, train, and then compete, and that's it. <laughs> right, right. Well, I think um, I guess the sentiment uh, is probably correct, is that. Uh, you do it for the athletes, given the, the hard work they put in over the last, I guess, five years now to, to get to the Olympics. Yes. And uh, maybe in the end, that, that, that may be where, what transpires. So let's, uh, let's move on, I guess, the big question and just relating it back to the stock market. The big question amongst investors is, um, is the BOJ is now sitting on these, um, on these uh, uh, you know, ETF holdings, um, and and actually, you know, some great gains uh, given where the Nikkei is today. And if indeed you're right, it goes to thirty five thousand. There'll be even bigger gains. What's your, um, uh, you know, and, and I guess the big worry for a lot of people, international investors in particular, I guess, and domestic investors. You know, what is the end game here? Uh, what, what are your thoughts about the end game? You know, uh, to, to 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 this predicament. Yes, um, <laughs> you know, I wrote. Uh, this past summer, when the big DOJ announced, uh, I think for the third time, they announced their plan to ramp up the ETF purchases. Uh, I, I said something along the lines of the Bank of Japan is an excellent market timer, and <laughs> they've proven themselves right again. You know, every time they ramp up, that's typically the low in the market. So they've, they've done it again. Um in terms of the exit strategy or what is ultimately the end game, they are so below, so behind their inflation objective of 2% that I don't think they see the end game just yet. And this has come up many times 
uh, over the course of years of my, um, you know, um, meeting with BOJ folks, you know, how are you going to exit from this ETF purchase tool? Because, you know, with bond purchases, there is an automatic mechanism to get out over time. But with ETF, there really isn't a mechanism. You know, you could, you could just sit on the balance sheet forever. And their frank answer is, look, we, we don't have it yet because we're so uh, far from our inflation objective that we can't really discuss, uh, we can't even entertain the idea of exiting from this tool. Uh, I think all of us at some level know that this is not going to end well that you know the the bank of japan is now the largest uh shareholder of uh, japanese equities they've they just surpassed the government pension funds so they are a huge presence um, in the japanese equity market um, and at the moment they're tied to continue to purchase at a at an aggressive level uh at, at an aggressive pace uh but I have to say there isn't an end game in sight. What I what I personally think will happen is because they have so much uh, that there will be a Bank of Japan asset management unit uh, over the court in the in the future. Uh, but again, that that might have to be like a 2024 2025 event. And that would be, I guess, um, a rather elegant, uh, you know, um, um, way to 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 manage the. The process, I guess, right, and uh, you know, I'm thinking um, about, uh, say, the the uh, Swiss National Bank that uh, has, uh, as part of their own programs, have been buying global equities, uh, and uh, you know, um, often, uh, and and obviously they've had huge gains uh, on on their stock market, and mm-hmm. you know, ultimately. Mm-hmm. It basically becomes like a sovereign wealth fund, you know, situation where uh, yes. where the uh, where the asset manager is essentially um, you know uh, owned. In, I guess more formally in Switzerland is uh, owned by the cantons, but um, you know, but but that could also happen in, in in Japan. It could be you know could be the makings of a, of a um, of a um, you know, sovereign wealth fund type of situation. Yes, and you know, this is sort of my my wish list or uh, dream list, but you know, what could happen here is to the extent the central government is focused on improving corporate governance, uh, the bank of Japan can actually have, can exert a lot of influence to further that cause. Uh, of course, at the moment it's all passive. So there isn't, uh, the bank of Japan is actually not helping that cause by being a huge passive investor. Um, but you know, that's something that, you know, if used correctly, could be a powerful tool. So uh, let's uh, let's uh, drift to that to that thread. So obviously, um, you know, corporate governance and uh, was uh, and, uh, and and I guess return uh, proper equity market returns for for investors was uh, was one of our Arbe's um, you know five arrows. Um, what um, uh, you know? How's that continued? Uh, or not under the Suga government? On the transition to the new administration, there are a couple of things that I want to point out. One is that I think the consensus view is that Suga will be a caretaker prime minister. And I think as long as he can control the pandemic right, I, I think that assumption is not 
uh, quite correct. I think Suga has ideas of his own that he wants to um, uh, exercise. And, you know, the way I, I describe Suga versus Abe is Abe, um, uh, whether it's right or wrong, he, he was there for a long time and he had charisma for a Japanese prime minister. So he was a, what I think of him as he, he was a charismatic CEO with grand visions, but perhaps lacking the execution. And that you kind of saw that with corporate governance and some of the structural reforms. Ideas were there, but it wasn't quite well executed. Uh, Suga, I think, is the exact opposite. He's the very influential COO, so he may not have the charisma. He certainly doesn't have the charisma of Mr. Abe, uh, but he, what he lacks in charisma, he makes up with execution. And he was a, he was an excellent number two person, uh, under Abe for a long time. And I think that some of the things that he's working on at the moment are two things. One is, um, what they call digital transformation. So, you know, believe it or not, they're, they're very sophisticated in some of the technology, but Japan still uses fax machines. So, <laughs> you know, <they're, laughs> some of the technologies are still stuck in 1980s and 1990s. And Mr. Suga said, well, well none of that. Uh, no more fax machines. Uh, so they're, he's, he's trying to provide subsidies for companies that are transforming into digital age. So that seems to be number one. Uh, the second focus seems to be, and I think this is right, uh, which is industry consolidation, especially in regional banks where, you know, bank loan growth just isn't there in smaller regions and there are too many banks. So this is something he's been talking about for, for the last two decades. And there seems to be a little bit of push to get that going. Um, you know, what I hope what happened is that industry consolidation doesn't stop in regional banks. It, you know, there are many industries that are over competitive, uh, whether it's retail or home building. Um, so hopefully that'll extend into other industries. Um, but you know, the point here is I do think he will be very reform minded. It may not be as catchy as Mr. Abe's, uh, grand plans. Uh, but, this will continue as long as Suga can remain in, in office. And corporate governance, again, will be part of that that, that plan. So more of a Tim Cook at Apple rather than uh, Steve Jobs is the way, probably yeah. the best way to yeah. describe it. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, uh, that's, a good, that's a good analogy. I might use that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, obviously we've had um, you know, RCEP recently, um, and you know we we've got if you like a an Asia regional block which is a, a huge block in terms of kind of economic uh, powerhouse as well as population and a young population if you take the whole region. Um, um, uh, how how do you think the relationship obviously with China is developing and the rest of Asia and is you know are the Japanese companies in in a great position? to take advantage of, you know, some of the regional trade deals that are being set up? Yes, I, I think this is a huge deal. And, you know, unfortunately, this is not the kind of thing that gets the market too excited, even though it actually has a, has substantial impact on uh, earnings power for Japanese companies. And, you know, this is a good way to, good, good segment to bring this up. 
um, had a call yesterday with another uh, Europe-based investor, and you know I told him about the, the synchronized global being the the centerpiece of Japan call this year. He said, well, "Well, if that's the case, how is that any different from you know investing in European equities?" Uh, and and he's right. He's he's right that this is a tailwind that everybody shares. Having said that, um, what I think uh, Japan has been somewhat unfairly characterized is the lack of growth, uh, lack of domestic growth, has been uh, uh, has been the problem for Japanese equities, or at least investors say. Well, Japan's earning, uh, Japan's growth outlook is bleak, so I won't invest in Japanese equities. But if you look at the last 20 years, nominal GDP in Japan has grown at an annual rate of 0.3%. So that's basically zero. Uh, population has been absolutely zero over the past 20 years, right? Uh, but if you look at corporate profits, they've grown at 5% at an annual rate over the past 20 years, despite nominal GDP in Japan being zero, virtually zero. And that's actually quite comparable to the U.S. corporate profits of, you know, annualized rate of 6%. And that that has actually translated to the track record of uh, Japanese stock market, right? Uh, the last 10 years, if you look at 2010 to 2020, the S&P has grown at an annualized uh, rate of 11.5%. The Nikkei is up Ten and a half percent over that twenty years, uh, over the 20, ten years, and compared to that, Europe is up two and a half percent. So, you know, Japan gets sort of characterized as okay. Well, there is no um, economic outlook for Japan, so let's stay away from Japanese companies. And in fact, what Japanese companies are doing again, going back to my original uh, remark, is that they're there are companies that are domiciled in Japan that do a lot of business overseas. And that share of overseas revenues and earnings will only uh, grow over time. And this RCEP is another sort of push in that direction. It gives much more market access to, to Asia from Japanese companies. Uh, same for, you know, what was intended to be the TPP. Um, but, you know, all these things, all these trade packs are, long-term positive for Japanese companies. And um, in terms of the relationship of um, the uh, you know, Japan and, and the US, obviously uh, the relationship with Trump was, was um, an okay one, I would describe it. Um, more about not being confrontational and all than anything else. Um, how, how do you think the relationship uh, with, with the Biden uh, presidency will be? I think it'll be uh, okay. Um, I would actually be even more, I would be stronger and say, uh, from the Japanese point of view, the, uh, the U.S.-Japan relationship was actually quite good under Trump. And uh, actually, the, Mr. Abe has uh, used that opportunity very well, which is by aligning himself with Trump, uh, he got himself a nice popularity boost. Um, obviously, he doesn't have, you know, Suga doesn't have that sort of tailwind uh, uh, on his back, but I do think this will be non-contentious, um, sort of reverting back to the old U.S.-Japan relationship, which is mutually beneficial, um, grounded on uh, security alliance, um, and 
I think it is a tall order to expect the U.S. to rejoin the TPP. I don't think that will happen. Um, but I think the relationship will just remain um, as good as it can be um, under Biden-Suga partnership. Again, very, very interesting, and we'll watch uh, very, very carefully. So um, I guess the last thread for for today is is about kind of corporate profitability. We talked about that, you know, the the international um, exposure, some of the technology trends that uh, you discussed. We also talked about um, um, the Olympics and maybe there's some delays coming through in terms of kind of domestic consumption, um, given that, uh, you know, lockdowns will probably kind of continue and, and travelers won't necessarily come to Japan. Japan's been very good at attracting foreigners over the last, you know, 10 years or so. Um, any kind of other sort of corporate behavior do you think you've noticed kind of real change over the course of the last, uh, you know, five or 10 years? Actually, I'm very glad that you, you brought that up because this is a, um, this is somewhat behavioral and it's hard to quantify, but I think it, it is very important. And I think you know that I've been having these, uh, I've been doing the survey of Japanese companies mm. uh, every quarter. And you can sort of pick up the sentiment or what everybody's thinking during the survey. Because after, after you meet 20 or 30 companies, everybody sort of has said it all. Mm. Right. And uh, what I was really, really concerned um, in March and April of 2020 is that you have this this massive shock, economic shock of, of the pandemic and everybody will just freeze up. You know, everybody will go into the, to the full defense mode and not spend cash, not do CapEx, not hire anybody. Uh, cut dividends. So I, I was really afraid that would happen. And that did happen in 2009 and 2011, right? 2009 after the great financial crisis and 2011 after the great earthquake in Japan. So I was really afraid that we'll revert back to that period. Fast forward, what ended up happening in 20, you know, by October, it was pretty clear that that didn't happen, that, that sort of defensive uh, instinct didn't quite kick in in Japan. And actually, when I talked to the companies, they said, no, we're, we're, we're going to continue to invest in these long-term projects like EV and 5G and factory automation. And I was very pleasantly surprised. And I, I and then I started to look into, okay, why is this happening? Right? Why are they so secure about the outlook? even though the, the current conditions are not that great, uh, there are a couple of things. One is, as you pointed out, the yen remains competitive. That's a huge psychological boost, right? Uh, if you go back to 2010, the yen was trading at 80. So there was, that, that was another hurdle that they had to clear. Uh, the second, and this is a double-edged sword, which is they have massive ca uh, cash on their balance sheet. So the Japanese companies, uh, as of today, have $3 trillion in corporate cash that they can deploy. That wasn't the case in 2010. It was much smaller, and a lot of companies were scrambling to, to secure working capital. Right. So that, that extra liquidity, um, you know, investors can sometimes say, well, they can spend that on capital returns, 
but that ended up being exactly the right uh, tool that they can use. Uh, so that's one. Um, the other point, I think, is um, this idea that policy makers will be at least business friendly in this environment. And I think that was one of the things that that was a grave mistake of 2010. Uh, the Bank, Bank of Japan didn't really intervene, even though the yen was 80. You know, it was really, really strong. Uh, but the, the idea that policymakers will do whatever it takes to keep the, the currency competitive and help them as much as they can with fiscal stimulus, uh, that, that was a huge uh, psychological boost. So, you know, have I learned anything in the last six months on the positive side? I would say that's actually the, the, the biggest surprise that I've seen in the last six months is companies are ready to invest. And that, that's, a, that's a big lesson they learned from a decade ago. Absolutely fascinating. And I guess that uh, certainly um, delves into a little bit more in terms of kind of I guess corporate behavior and uh, you know maybe some of those Abe policies um, will start to kind of filter filter in. Uh, so so Jay, um, our time is up. Um, you know, thank you very much uh, for being in the podcast. Uh, I think it'll be you know very interesting for for many um, investors who uh, who have ignored uh, Japan, but certainly um, the rationale that you've uh, sketched out today certainly makes a lot of sense. Again, thank you very much, and, uh, and hope ho- hopefully have you again. And, on and soon. I look forward to uh, I look forward to traveling to Asia again together. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, we will definitely be looking forward to that, um, and yes. uh, get to see what changes have happened over the last you know four or five years. Again, very interesting discussion uh, with Jay Wu. So uh, please listen in next week. And of course, if you have any questions, please feel free to uh, email us. Thanks again and speak to you soon.